And it's time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Have you had this experience of uh, pulling out in front of another car and you realise that uh, you haven't actually seen the car coming? Well, imagine that that's what your life was like all the time. So here's a little exercise you can try for yourselves at home. Uh, just walk around the house for about 10 minutes or so with your eyes shut. What's it like? Yes, it's quite intimidating, isn't it? Uh, so you have the choice. You could open your eyes and you can uh, navigate the ho house with your eyes open. But if you were blind, it's not a choice that you have. So here's where science actually does something real for real people. And there's a lot of work going on around the globe on the artificial eye. And perhaps last week or a couple of weeks ago on the ABC Catalyst program, you saw the program about... The bionic eye, which is now under development, and we have some top people in Australia working on this very thing. It is an international effort, and I'd like to welcome into the studio Dr. Chris McCarthy, who's a research engineer from the National ICT Australia, also known as NICTA. Hi, Rod. Nice to be here. And welcome back to Fuzzy. I believe you used to do Fuzzy a few years ago. Yes, a couple of years ago, and I'm glad that the theme song hasn't changed at all. It's just <laughs> as funky now as it was then. <laughs> I, would, I would be all confused if I didn't hear that <laughs> music. Uh, maybe I'll give it some new one, a new theme one day. And also I'd like to welcome back to Fuzzy Logic, Dr. Brendan O'Brien from the ANU College of Medicine, Biology and the Environment. Yeah, great to be here, Ron. Thanks. And uh, now your particular area of expertise in the, is in the biology of the eye. Yes, trying to understand how it is that the retina works. Uh, that's the, the light-sensitive part of your eye, uh, the one that is really sensitive to many sort of disease processes. Yes, and we're going to get into that. So we have two sides of the equation here. We've got the technology side with Chris. Yes. And the biology side with you, Brendan. So we've got it covered now, just before we go into the meat of the matter, Chris, tell us a little bit about NICTA. Sure. So NICTA is a, um, a government-funded, federally-funded and also state-government-funded and territory-funded uh, ICT uh, research organisation. So uh, we have five labs around Australia, one in Canberra, two in Sydney, uh, one up in Brisbane and one in Melbourne. And we do a range of different, uh, I guess, information technology-based uh, projects, very much about fundamental research, but also about trying to, uh, I guess, get that to, to the marketplace or to some sort of benefit for, you know, in the health sector or in uh, the resources sector, you know, you name it, we're trying to do something in that sector, I guess. Um, that's what we do. Well, there must be a lot of challenges in bringing things to the market. I might ask you some more questions about that. But first of all, tell us a little bit about the ABC crew who showed up at your place the other day. Sure. They just sort of rocked up with their cameras and uh, their talent. <laughs> and uh, they, um, they actually, what they got to do, which is, um, which is really good to see, was to play around in our trial environment that we've actually set up there. So we're, we're currently doing... Um, human trials for simulated prosthetic vision, which is, or maybe we'll talk a bit more about that later. Uh, and they actually got to film in that environment and uh, Paul Willis uh, got to play and actually do the trial for himself uh, and they took their cameras in. So that was really good fun. Uh, we really enjoyed having them there and uh, finding out a bit about it. Yeah, it was a, it was a fascinating show. So this lab that you've got, what, is, um, what does it look like? Uh, imagine, uh, I guess, a world of lace, I like to call it. Uh, it's it basically we have a, a six by three sort of cubicle, cubicles, uh, you know, in a space of about 10 by five metres. 
uh, and we've basically set it up so that we can configure different mazes. Or we Not really mazes, we're not trying to create puzzles as such, but just different kinds of configurations of courses uh, where we can get people to, to navigate through that. Um, so this is very much focused on our navigation, the, the navigation aspect of, of the Bionic Eye project. Uh, and trying to see how people can work with different representations of that environment. That's what we're trying to get mm, at mm. Uh, in that. Well, I imagine, yes, just the simple problem that I described earlier when we, of getting around your house and getting around mm. the streets, if you can't see, it must be pretty complicated. So I guess that you're focusing on that to begin with because that is a fundamental problem that someone who can't see needs. Well, absolutely. I, I guess, I mean... We haven't just sort of chosen these problems out of the blue. There's focus groups that have fed into this as well. So we've got uh, within the consortium of Bionic Vision Australia, the Centre for Eye Research Australia uh, in Melbourne, and they actually have focus groups of potentially people who would use such implants uh, who've, who've named... Obviously, navigation is one of their big issues. Another one is face recognition, so recognising people they know uh, as they walk past them in a corridor uh, or in any social situation, in a meeting as well. Um, So these are the sorts of problems... I guess we're looking at two specific ones, navigation and face recognition, and in terms of what the software can do to support that uh, or what can we... How can we represent what comes into the camera, which I guess we'll talk about a bit more as part of this solution, uh, how can we get people to then navigate in an in a environment they don't know so well? Um, because, yeah. Well, there must be a lot of subtleties in that. And so the idea, I guess, the, the easy idea of the eye is it's just a camera and you plug some wires into the brain, but it's not quite as simple as that, is it, Brendan? No, at least each eye has about a million wires going from one eye to your brain. A million? Ultimately, that's about correct, yes. So trying to work out the wiring diagram for that, if you were to actually pop one eye out and try and pop a bionic eye in, if you were thinking of it that way, is is not not a trivial sort of problem to deal with. So uh, I'm a photographer in, in one of my hobbies, and... We all know who people are into digital photography, that you've got the CCD device at the back of the lens, you know, it's in, in the camera body, and it collects the, the light coming in. So what are the differences between that and the retina? Oh, there's, uh, in this case, what we're talking about is a biological solution to that. Um, the retina is, is complicated, and I'll, I'll, more or less what we need to talk about is the two different ends of it. On one end, there's what are called the photoreceptors, and most people would know what I'm talking about if I start talking about your rods and your cones, your rods supporting your night vision, uh, and your cones mostly your day vision and your color vision. Those cells are on one end of your retina, and they're the ones that are very susceptible during disease processes. They are uh, likely to die in the two main ones that we're talking about with trying to treat with the bionic eye, which is retinitis pigmentosa and age-related macular degeneration. when those cells die, essentially, it doesn't matter what light goes into your eye anymore. It can't be sensed by what's remaining in the retina. So what the bionic eye does, um, the chip implant that we'd be putting in there, is to create electrical stimulation that would then try to represent what those rods and cones would have done before and then leave the rest of the system to interpret that information with the brain. Ah, but is functionally what the CCD at the back of the camera, the sensor the camera does, mm-hmm. how is that different? So it's not just a matter of taking the signal out of one of those, those chips and plugging it into the right nerve connection in the back of the eye. Oh, that's right. Well, 
in, in one way it is and in one way it isn't. The, the, um, the, the eye is, to a degree, a camera. It has two optical elements at the front that then focus the light onto the back of the retina. Once it's there, you have a two-dimensional array representing the world around you, just like on that CCD. So the, the reason that the retina is useful to put a particular electrical implant on it is that you could, in theory, actually have what is equivalent to a CCD camera, and one group in the world has actually been doing this, which is to actually have a, a light-sensitive... Uh, what is it in that case, Chris? It's the actual... These are LEDs, essentially. That yeah, are, basically, um, yeah. yeah. That sense the light and then produce an electrical signal. Once those are done, that means that in the eye, you now have a light-sensitive system that then, re- instead of puts out um, neurotransmitters like a photoreceptor does, it puts out an electrical signal, and that stimulates the retina to do this. And this is the German group from Tübingen um, that is working on that particular way of doing things. Now, theirs has been, to do some degree, very successful, um, but to another degree, very unsuccessful because their implant lasts roughly two or three months inside the eye, and then it degrades itself to the point where they have to take it back out again. So this is another problem that our system here at BVA is particularly well equipped for because of the cochlear implant that's been developed here in Australia. That system is extremely well characterized and is well known how to go about making sure that it's not going to degrade. And we've been using a lot of that sort of technology to try and implant into our system. Ah, yes. Now, the interface between a bit of fabricated technology and the eye, that's a whole subject in itself, I oh, imagine. Yes. Cybernetics. Yes, yeah, cybernetics. <laughs> the $6 million man, we can rebuild him. I remember that. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Actually, it's a $6 billion man now, yeah. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but there's some fundamental differences between the uh, artificial eye and the artificial cochlea, I mm. would think. Oh, yes. So what, what, what are some of the basic ones? Well... If you think about the the cochlea, what it what it does is uh, the cochlea is what's allowing you to actually um, hear. So it's taking sound waves that are present in the environment and then translating those into electrical signals that your brain is going to interpret. What the cochlea does is to take different frequencies. So like a, a low bass frequency of a hundred hertz or something along those lines, all the way up to twenty thousand hertz. That's a very, very high uh, signal. That's one single dimension that it has to encode. The retina, on the other hand, the one in the back of your eye, has to encode not only the pace, which is what we were talking about, the different CCD pixels, if you can think about that, uh, in the back of your eye. uh, is sort of an equivalent way of thinking about that. So it's encoding space in two dimensions that way. But then it also encodes motion, and it also encodes color, and it also encodes particular special kinds of motion. When uh, you start rotating your head, it will actually try to actually extract the fact that the world is moving and not your eye and not the, that uh, the whatever it is that you're looking is looking at that you're looking at is moving. Yeah, and in fact, as you're talking, Brendan, your eyes are flicking around the room, mm. and yet the world is not flicking around the room. That's absolutely correct, and that is a major problem that we have to solve. So, for instance. Um, and this is, a, I think, a lot of what Chris is actually trying to work out as well. So in the lab over at NICTA, the problem here is that now what you've done is to take an electrical implant device and you put it in the back of your eye. That is connected to a camera 
and the camera in our case is generally going to be put on like the bridge of uh, a pair of spectacle lenses. Now, the lenses aren't doing anything in this case, but the camera is rather active, and it's then telling you what's going on around the world. But when you move your eye, mm. nothing has happened about what's happened in terms of the world, right? Because the camera is still looking in the same place. Ah. So suddenly, you now have an effect where you've uh, more or less taken the world and making your eye movements so that they have no impact whatsoever any longer on what you're actually seeing. Oh, so mm. your brain expects to be able to flick the eyes left yes. or right, yeah. and you can't do it. Well, so, you, yeah. yeah, so one thing we are looking at to, in that respect is eye tracking. One thing we can always try to incorporate is the ability to actually, in, in, by taking, say, pictures of the eye, and this, this sort of technology does exist already, uh, we can actually track where the eye is looking and then maybe use that to direct what we show somebody with the actual images coming in via the, the mounted cameras in the glasses. Um, so that's the sort of research we're looking at as well. So there's a variety of angles to what we're doing uh, in terms of solving that through a, a software-based solution, I guess. And, uh, and how much have you learned from what the people with the artificial cochlea did? How, how relevant is that to uh, what you've been doing? Um, to us, uh, I, I guess... Not so directly do we learn a lot from the cochlea, I guess, for our kind of work. I mean, we're very much in the vision processing. Um, so the kind of expertise, I guess, at NICTA in this project is very much on vision processing. So we're, we're very familiar with taking images to extract um, information. So, for example, my background's in robotics. So a lot of my work has been what, what I do now is actually more informed by what I understand of how I used to do things in navigating a robot via digital images uh, and extracting information from those images. Um, so that's the sort of angle I bring to it, plus what we understand from the, the, the visual science of this and the, the neuroscience of this and what we, the brain expects to get. Uh, we're trying to, I guess, in a sense, speak the language of the visual cortex by taking, Im taking these images and extracting things like motion, that the kinds of cues that we expect the retina to, to be processing but may not be able to do it uh, at the low resolution of what the implants are likely to be in the next few years. Yeah. This is exactly the interface that we're talking about between Chris's work at, uh, at NICTA and then my own and my colleagues at ANU. So, for instance, if we, we have the camera, right, and the camera has to encode, say, we'll say, brightness of the image. Now, what Chris's system has to do is extract the different sort of edges and, and components of whatever it is that the camera is actually seeing at that time. Now, in my own work, we need to work out what that signal is going to actually translate into turning, actually stimulating the retina. So in this case, this is where we are getting a lot of information from what the cochlear implant has done because we're looking at the successful stimulation strategies that are used there and trying to apply them to the retina. And it, it doesn't work. It's not a nice one-to-one -one sort of expectation. No, um, things are very different in the retina than they are uh, in the cochlea as far as mm. all kinds of um, this, the physics of how electricity is going to flow. But... Um, this is more or less the, the interface of the two areas that are actually working together to try and solve the problem. How can we take an image from a camera, encode that into something that then goes to the electrical stimulation on the prosthetic, mm. and, and then have the person say, that's a chair? Mm. Uh, yeah, and it's an amazing thing to be able to do. It's a blend of body and mechanics or, and electronics. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Community Radio. Two double X, my name is Rod, and our special guest today, uh, 
Dr. Chris McCarthy from NICTA and Dr. Brendan O'Brien. And here is a little music. This is The Who, I Can See, etc. I can see for miles and miles, yes, that is The Who. For those of us who like classic music, you are listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on 2XX Community Radio 98.3. My name is Rod, and special guest in the studio, Dr Chris McCarthy from NICTA, a electronics research engineer, and Dr Brendan O'Brien from the ANU College of Medicine, Biology and Environment. And thank you to Alison who uh, brought that music in for us today. Now, uh, we are talking the bionic eye, and I'm wondering, Brendan, who is or who is not suitable for th- this kind of implant, for a bionic eye? Okay. Um, the, the, pro- the prosthetic device that we're working on assumes that it's only that the photoreceptors, those rods and cones, have died. The rest of the retina, there's a lot of connections going on between the cells and the retina, and then finally... Um, these cells called ganglion cells, for anyone who's really interested, that leave, have their connection actually leaves and talks to the brain. That still exists under both these two conditions known as retinitis pigmentosa and age-related macular degeneration. Because they exist, that means that we can electrically stimulate the retina and still get a signal to the brain that someone can then perceive. Now, on the other end of this, there's another disease that people would have heard of um, known as glaucoma. This is when you go in to see your optometrist or your ophthalmologist and they test the pressure inside your eye. And you know, people always find that really uncomfortable. They have to look at this ugly blue light and then suddenly this puff of air comes out of it and you go, mm. oh, I'm blinking, yeah. it's really nasty. I had it recently, yes. Um, uh, it's very important to check because glaucoma is a really devastating disease. But instead of killing the photoreceptors, the photorece- this one kills those ganglion cells, the connection between the, the eye and the brain. And once those are gone, no matter what electrical stimulation you did in the back of the eye, it wouldn't have any effect in the brain anymore. And that's why uh, part of the Bionic Vision Australia um, and the, the $50 million grant that we are all very thankful for from the Australian government to actually get this was to build what's called a cortical implant as well. And there's a group of uh, scientists and engineers at Monash University that are working on that. And that will be able to potentially help people with glaucoma who have already lost most of their ganglion cells and as a result can't see any longer. There, there is another facet to this, and that is um, what I think they call deep blindness, or the age at which the sight is lost to the person. So uh, there's, a, there's a news item here that I picked up last week, and it's the thing called Molly News Question. And it was posed by uh, this Irish politician, William... Sorry about the spelling, but it's Molly, N-E-U-X, Molly New, whatever. Mm-hmm. He posed this question in a letter to the great British thinker John Locke, 323 years ago. Wow. (laughs) And he said, Imagine that a blind man from birth has learned to identify objects, a sphere, a cube, for example, although only his uh, touch is is active, but then suddenly he's able to see. Mm. Mm. So is he then able to actually connect what he can see to what he can feel when when he's given sight later on, or she, I should say? Mm. And so this, uh, this, in this story, that uh, there's this place in India, and so in 2003, they set up a program uh, at the Shroff 
charity Eye Hospital in New Delhi, and right. among the patients this researcher treated, they found five, four boys and one girl aged 8 to 17, who met the criteria for surgery and almost instantly take from total blindness to fully seeing. And so once the bandages were removed, the researchers were uh, able to see, uh, find out what, were they able to actually sense the object? And the answer was no, not really. They couldn't form the connection. So in, the, in a critical test, the children first felt the object and then tried to distinguish visually uh, what, whether it was the same object or not. Right. Hmm. So at what point, if you were blind from birth, are you able to actually process the information in your brain when you, when you do get sight? Oh, it's a very, very good question, Rod. Um, there's, uh, which has a very complicated answer. Um, we have to think about it from a couple of different perspectives. If you were blind from birth, right, you're not getting any information from your eyes at all any longer. You're only learning about the world using your hands and your smells and your, your um, auditory system, your hearing. So if you were to simply give someone their sight back, suddenly they have that information. That is something they have to completely learn now, all right? meaning that when you actually feel the, the sphere, then you can actually correlate that as a normal individual with what you're looking at. And this is what children are doing throughout their entire mm. lives as they develop. They are learning how to use their sensory organs in order to work with one another. We were talking about this earlier about how Luke over here who was joining us in the studio today was already knew where his mouth was without any trouble, uh, even if he had his eyes open or not. And that is clearly a, a way of knowing your own self to some degree. Now, if you don't have that information about the visual world around you, you're going to have to learn it. And this is something exactly like what happens with the cochlear implants. What people learned about this, particularly with adults, is that when you suddenly give someone back their hearing, it doesn't come right away. It requires a lot of training about this is what this sounds like and this is what I'm telling you it is about can you then uh, understand what I'm saying now? So if you're now reading it and you're listening to what the person is reading to you, you can then start to understand how to decode that information. But it takes a while before that happens. Now, the reason that I said that this is complicated is that it's different for kids than it is for adults. Mm. The kid's brain is really what we call plastic it can recover from massive... No, you're not actually made out of plastic, Luke. The, <laughs> the issue in this case means that your brain is continuously developing. So even if we, uh, you have a serious problem or um, if we start training you in a particular way, then your brain will develop more connections to be able to do these sorts of things. So, for instance, if I tell you that you have to actually sink a thousand baskets in basketball today and you have to do that Every day for the next 20 years, you are going to be one amazing basketball player at the end of that, but uh, um, compared to somebody who doesn't do it, and that's essentially the way that your brain adapts to its environment, and that's really easy for kids, and it's a little bit harder for us older guys. The old, old, the old dogs are hardly difficult actually learning new tricks, so um, the, it, this is... Uh, a, f a fundamental challenge that any prosthetic device is going to have, whether it be a visual one, an auditory one, or even the motor ones that are being developed as well, how to replace an arm from a soldier who's had a serious injury. Uh, um, this is another area of massive development throughout the world, trying to figure out how you can build a prosthetic limb and have them be able to think and still move it. 
Uh, well, here's an interesting exercise for our listeners at home. Uh, uh, once you've opened your eyes from the earlier exercise I gave you, just look at a scene and try to divorce it of any meaning. Can you look around the room and say, all I can see is a pattern of light and dark shapes and colours, but I cannot see... I, I, find it impossible to do it. So looking around the studio at the moment, mm. I can see Chris and Simon and uh, Brendan, and, and I cannot divorce myself from the meaning that I'm seeing here. Yeah, well, I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, this, this is a crucial point about how uh, somebody with an implant is going to have to basically learn that association again. And I think... You know, and I, also we should point out that it, these these implants we're looking at in the first case are going to be very low resolution. We're talking about a, we're talking about a hundred electrodes, I guess, in the first implant that BVA is looking at. Uh, and within each electrode, we don't know how many levels of stimulation we can actually get somebody to perceive. So what we're talking about here is providing somebody with a, a very abstract view of the world and. They need to learn, as you say, how to make meaning out of those patterns. And hopefully there will be patterns to, to learn. And that's, that's certainly um, what we have to facilitate is, is providing stable patterns that mean something in terms of what's in front of them at that moment. Yes, and, um, and people can watch the Catalyst program. It's still online for downloads. And you can see in there the images that you're generating from your system. Mm. So at what stage of development is it? I mean, how, uh, how advanced or how far have you got to go a long way, I would um, guess? Well, it's, sort of a, it's, a, it's an interesting question because in some sense we could, what we could do is basically take the image as it comes in and simply downsample that and show people that very low resolution image. That's that's the simplest solution, and in fact, that's what currently is pretty much what's going on, uh, a downsampled view of the digital image. Um, but as you've pointed out, that may not mean much to somebody, particularly in a in a in a room such as where we're in, where there's bright, there's dark, uh, all kinds of colours and, and contrast changes going on. That some of which have some structural meaning, and some of which don't. But how do we get somebody to know that, for example, the, uh, the edge of this box in front of me here is actually the edge of, of a real object or not just some sort of change of colour across a single surface? So our job uh, is really about saying, well, we need to make sure, particularly in the low-resolution case, that, what we're, that every phosphine, which is what we refer to as being the, 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 the visual sensation someone gets from these stimulations, um, we need to make sure every single electrode is doing the best it can to convey the most unambiguous information it can. So, for example, uh, we're not pegged to showing people the luminance in the world at all. We don't have to do that. We don't have to say, oh, that's a white wall and that's a dark wall. We can say, well, maybe they care about how far away surfaces are, for example. So instead of using bright to mean a bright surface, we mean bright means close, dark means far away. Uh, and that's something we're actually looking at right now is in, in our trials is showing people a view of the world where we're taking two images of that world. So imagine two cameras on, a, say, a pair of glasses separated by, you know, maybe 12 centimetres or so, taking those images to actually correlate features between the two views, which gives us an estimate of how far away objects are in the scene, and then use that data to actually render an image for somebody where it's about depth rather than luminance. Uh, and that's, I mean, this people have thought about this sort of idea and it's been used in other contexts before, but actually visualising the world in a depth kind of view is, is actually very 
uh, how people use that is a very unknown thing and we're actually trying to get at that right now um, as a potential way to bridge the gap where we have a low resolution uh, which may not be enough to show them the actual view but might be enough to convey this. Yes, in in the video that uh, you see on the ABC, they're just basically fairly big, chunky uh, pictures. It's, it's broken down into large, well, I'm not sure they're pixels, but what are you, picture elements anyway. Yeah, yeah, we call them phosphenes. phosphenes. Uh, the, the actual, they're sort of bright star-like, um, uh, yeah, sort of, we sort of call them a Gaussian sort of, mm blurry light if you like that's what we understand people to see from previous work in this area and there's been a lot of this at work Brendan knows a lot yeah. more than me well people will, will when we're talking about phosphenes if you've ever happened to bang your head against the back of your uh, something along the back of your head against something pretty hard mm. you would have seeing stars you would have seen stars right so that's what we're talking about those are phosphenes that's a light stimulus that you are perceiving that has nothing to do with the outside world, ultimately. In our case, it will be very heavily correlated with the outside world, and that's what your brain has to learn. So um, where what uh, was going on on the Catalyst one, where you're seeing these big sort of pixel elements that you're talking about that don't look like these tiny pixels and then, you know, the 1200 by 800 sort of view on your on your monitor. These are tiny, tiny pixels. These other ones are only, what, do you guys have a 24 pixel range or um, it's the, big? Yeah, the Catalyst uh, images were actually more like a thousand. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, which is not, our first actual implant will be a hundred. Right. Um, so to put it in perspective, if that looked pretty bad or it looked pretty blurry, that's actually a fairly good scenario oh, for really? what we're looking at in the first case. Yeah. But as I said, it's really about saying, well, we know that's a low resolution and that's probably really hard to use, but what can we do with that? I mean, this is a stepping stone and this is something we want to get out there that will be a therapeutic benefit. Mm. And I guess currently the, the mm. thinking is that may not be enough for 100 electrodes, but, okay. but I guess we think we can do better than to make that useful. Well, if actually. you're, well, the, if you're the, profoundly blind, that's pretty handy. I mean, oh, that's, yeah. be, that's better than, than total darkness. But there, there's something a little we need to discuss here about this, and that, that's there's two different devices that we're trying to develop. The one that Chris is talking about with 100 electrodes is about peripheral vision, mm. all right? Not what you're looking at when you're looking at somebody's face and recognizing there. That's called your macular, your central, or your foveal vision. That requires a lot of those ganglion cells. About 800,000 of that million ganglion cells are talking about that part of your visual world. And it's very, very small. More or less, if you're looking at, if you take your hand and you put it at arm's length and you see your, the width of your thumbnail, that is about the size of your fovea at that particular distance. So the fovea is where you see the really high detail, the high resolution That's right. part? Now, what Chris yeah. is talking about, the implant, the very first one, is only 100 electrodes, mm. but it's about your peripheral vision, everything around that. And what you, the moment you start uh, trying to cover up your central vision, you realize immediately that you can't see particularly well at all in terms of detail outside that area. Um, you, your, your central vision degrades really dramatically as you go out to the periphery. Mm. So for 100 electrodes, what this device is supposed to do is to detect the bus coming at you when you're trying to actually get across the street. Mm. It, you're not spo- you don't need to know that it's a bus. That's you right. need to know that there's something coming at you that's about to be a big problem for that's you. That's right, exactly. So yeah. that's all it needs to do. The moment you move your eyes, then you can see it. And this works really well for those individuals who have retinitis pigmentosa, particularly the early stages of this. Um, well, not early the mid to late stages of it because what happens is that they lose their peripheral vision first 
uh, almost entirely to the point that they end up with very, very limited tunnel vision. So if you hold your eye, you know, your hand up to your eye and make a little tube and then look around the room, that's kind of the experience that these individuals actually have very limited tunnel vision and as a result if they're trying to cross the street and they can't they don't hear the bus coming they're not going to see it coming either um, so if you were to stimulate however out there in the periphery and say oh there's something floating that's actually coming this way whether you know it's a bus or not you know you're not supposed to cross the street right now and that will be something that is very useful to these individuals yeah just the ability to to navigate and um, oh, by the way, for you people at home, we're all, as we're speaking, pointing out, putting our ha- thumbs out in front of our faces. <laughs> we, we make little tunnels with our hands on the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Community Radio 2 X. We're talking the bionic eye with Dr. Brendan O'Brien from the ANU College of Medicine, Biology and Environment. That's me. That's Brendan. G'day, Brendan. And Dr. Chris McCarthy. Research engineer from NICTA, and we have some special guests in the studio. We've got Luke and Evelyn. Aaron. Aaron. Oh, Aaron. And Alison and Simon. Now, the bionic eye, uh, it's got to interface with uh, biology, so it's a merge, a blend of technology and biology. You've got these wires going in, and you mentioned um, some issues with the device stopped working after a few months. Oh, yeah. Is it an issue? You've got these little tiny fibres going into the optic nerve, or into the optic nerve, into they, the ganglion? They're going directly into the retina in this case. Into the retina, okay. Do you have issues with things like biofilms and, and deposits building up around it and the whole thing stops working? Um, the answer is that our device is designed specifically to avoid that, so it's going to have a very long lifetime, um, and that comes from the long history of the cochlear implant and how they've developed it to be hermetically sealed so that it, it doesn't have any major um, problems. That have been. Having said that, um, the answer is yes, the devices are going to have, to some degree, um, potentially limited lifetime, and th- this comes back to this uh, sort of way of going about the approach of how to put uh, a, um, a retinal prosthetic into the eye. Now, there are a couple different ways to do this. One way, um, the one that Chris has been talking about, is to be what's called superchoroidal. Now, that means probably nothing to most people out there. Um, ultimately, what it means is that it's going behind your eye. So it's, it's still inside the white of your eye, okay, so you can't see it, but if you were looking at somebody's eye who had the prosthetic, but it's behind the retina in this case. And that is a very physically stable place to be, meaning that the, the prosthetic device is not going to move, it's going to be very well held in place and won't have uh, big problems. Now this is where the cochlear implant is very different than the retinal implant. Remember your eyes move and they move quite a lot most of the time. And if you were to put the device on the other side, okay, now this is called an epiretinal device because it's sitting on top of the retina between the light and the retina in this case. So the light would be coming in your eye, it's still going to be doing that, through your cornea and your lens and get focused, in this case, onto the back of this prosthetic device, which is generally not sensitive to light itself. It's usually connected to this camera that I've been talking about. Now, here's a problem, all right, because this is on, the retina is only about, say, a third of a millimeter thick. The only thing that's holding that piece of uh, sort of hardware onto the back of your eye are these little tiny tacks that the surgeons put in. 
and just imagine that suddenly you bonked your head on the side of the wall mm. because you didn't happen to actually see that you know cupboard that you were trying to uh, get through in your house. Yeah, a friend of mine fell over while skiing and he had a detached retina. So exactly. it's quite a common mm. condition even for a healthy person. Oh yes, well in, in this case this would, would be a physical thing that's actually very hard and isn't directly really attached in this case. So if you bonked your head real hard it might just pop off the retina altogether and be completely dysfunctional. Mm. And this is what we're all struggling with around the world. The German one, which I was talking about earlier, the one that's having some problems, um, is a brilliant device. It works really well in the patients, and they've shown that these people can actually start to read. Um, we saw a video of one of the patients actually um, walking through uh, an outdoor environment where they go and they sit down at a pub in Germany, and they start saying, yep, that's the beer, and that's the, mm -hmm. the sausage over there. And it's an amazing device, but it has this problem. So... It's not just the fact that the device works. The device has to be something that's going to be able to stable. It's got to be able to live in there for a very long time because we can't be doing these surgeries every two months on all these patients. So what, what, what are these electrodes made out of? Oh, that's a very different thing. I'm going to leave that one to the engineer in the room. Oh, I'm a software engineer. Yeah, so. Oh, no, we're in trouble now. <clears throat> yeah, it's, uh, look, I, actually, I'm not an expert in that at all. Um, the, I know we're looking at um, various materials. Um, in, fact, in fact, in the case of the 98 electrodes, I'm, I'm very uh, ignorant to the actual materials well, being used. Well, in this case, uh, I think back, I do know a little bit more about this, but the, the platinum essentially is what's going on in the um, the, the, the superchoroidal device, the one, the 100 electrode one for peripheral vision. That particular device is set up with platinum because it is one of the most inert metals and it also is extremely conductive, um, meaning that you can put a little bit of current through and actually get your um, uh, signal to be sensed. The other device, the high-definition device, is the one where the high technology is really being developed in our system. And this is the one that is particularly uh, exciting around the world because it has it's a totally new approach. Mm. And this is what we call the diamond array. Um, it's actually made out of diamond that is then cast to have these little tiny um, electrodes that are sticking straight up that are only, in this case, not even a third of a millimeter long. These are only... Uh, well, 60 microns, so a really tiny, tiny little electrode that sticks into the eye. It gets put, in our case, epiretinally as well, um, the device that we're talking about so far. And as a result, um, it will then go into the retina, whereas most of the ones that have been developed that go epiretinally are sitting on the surface. Now, what we're hoping is that with this epiretinal device is that it will actually allow us to have better control over the size of the electrical stimulation that happens. So if we, this comes back to how the, the current flows in the mm. retina. So we're going to put you know, a current in that's going to hopefully activate a bunch of these cells in the retina. Now, if we put in, we'll say, uh, just a particular number, we'll say 100 microamps or 20 microamps. The question then becomes how many ganglion cells now just got activated and how far apart are they? Is that the percept that you're going to have, Rod, if we were to put it into your eye, going to be the size of that thumbnail that I was talking about or is it going to be the size of the wall behind you? So the the question mark is is really how how re what kind of resolution can we get out of this device and that device um, instead of having a hundred electrodes has a thousand twenty four electrodes on it. Um, and is designed to try and actually be able to um, give someone facial perception things back and higher resolution vision.
So would you feel nervous the first time you turn one of these things on that you're going to zap the person's ganglions with too much voltage? Well, certainly we're doing a lot of research in the lab to make sure that that's not going no. to happen. By no. definition, um, we can't be nervous about that. that yeah. the, the, the kinds of things you have to, to do to make sure that's not a problem. Uh, you, you know, it's a large part of the project as well, of course, is verifying that things like that are not an issue. Well, uh, I'm wondering, uh, Chris, how you manage with this because I can well put one of these devices on and I, I just... Are you experimenting at the moment with uh, normal sighted people just weighing, um, seeing little cameras? That's little, right. Little... Um, we've got quite a setup actually in this regard. So we're basically trying to understand uh, what the experience might be like for somebody with an implant by using simulated um, prosthetic vision. So what we do is we have a head mounted display. So imagine someone wearing, I guess, imagine, uh, I can't remember the character's name on Star Trek, the, the next generation, uh, but uh, he had the... Jordy LaForge. Oh, thank you, Brendan. <laughs> love, I love Star Trek. <laughs> uh, so that, that's sort of a device around uh, around the, the eyes. Uh, we block out all other vision so that the person can only see what we show them on this, um, on this head mounted display. Uh, and then using our software and the digital cameras that we have mounted on their head, head um, we ha actually have a helmet a ski helmet as it turns out is best for this um, <laughs> the kinds of questions we've had to answer to get this working is quite fascinating but um, um but basically that's what they have and uh and so we're able to actually um I, I guess explore the the various parameters that are potentially the variables we have to deal with in the implant you know, we, it's an idealized simulation i mean we can't really get at the real experience um, and it must be really hard because you can't just go and stick it on a rabbit's head and, and, no. and ask the rabbit what it's seeing. No, no. And in fact, you know, this, this will always be an issue is actually getting to what does somebody actually see? They can only really describe it to you. And this sort of psychophysics we call it is all part of this as well, is how do we mm -hmm. understand when we turn this electrode on what someone sees and where is it and trying to get at that kind of a question as well. So Because every person, of course... Um, we can't talk about these implants as though one one experience is the same as another's. I mean, the the way it's the, there's all kinds of variables. The connectivity uh, of each implant with the the person uh, will be different. Uh, we, we expect that not every electrode will necessarily work. How many levels of brightness someone can distinguish on any given electrode? All these are variables that we have to at least understand how they play into their their ability to use that um, and so that's part of what we're doing is we can actually look at degraded views of the world so we can make it noisy turn these phosphenes off and and, and see what do they do then can they mm. still navigate um, that's the kind of questions we're getting at in our trials at the moment now here's um, an opportunity for some motivational speech from you uh, Chris because a couple of weeks ago on fuzzy logic I had some students from Dixon College and one of them said I hate mathematics <laughs> but mathematics is integral to what Shock you do <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, look, it's. It, I, I'm a computer scientist, so underneath everything I do is mathematics, basically. I mean, it's, it's really at the core. And, and I, what I, I believe is, I mean, look, it's not like I can make maths at year nine or, you know, at college level amazingly interesting to someone. You, you, I, I look at it as a way of understanding problems. And, uh, and in some cases, I, I, it's probably the best way to understand problems. Not always, I mean, but in, in the context of... Uh, I, in, in the case of Bionic Eye, it's a real mix. You've got to, you've got to play into it. Well, there's a lot of... The way we, we uh, arrange these phosphenes or these electrodes, for example, um, so different array configurations can be used uh, and understanding how that 
effects. Well, well give, us, um, give us a simple example of, of a little bit of mathematics. Don't, no formulas, please. Don't work too well on sure. there. But <laughs> what's an example of, of a little bit of mathematics that you've used in your work? Okay, so uh, in, in pro previous work, I, I was looking at um, how honeybees um, perform landing and uh, and so honeybees are amazing little guys they really are um, for their size and their brain size they do incredibly sophisticated things uh, and what part of my work as a uh, I guess a computer scientist and a robotics researcher was to try and mimic that through uh, vision and so what I did is actually looking at particularly their behavior for landing uh, one of the problems with the current theory of that was that the, the, the theory was basically as, as a bee comes into land, the way they judge their distance from that surface. Uh, now, bear in mind, a bee's eyes are, are sticking outwards. So they're not like human eyes where you've got two eyes looking forward. And as I said, for the stereo camera case, you can get depth from basically correlating between two views. Bees have their eyes sticking outwards, so they don't really have much of an overlap between their two eyes. So how do they judge how far away they are from ah, so landing? So they can't do the parallax. They can't um, yeah. look at the difference between the left and the right eye to do this. That's right. What you're saying. That's right. right. Yeah. Now, there's been a lot of work, in fact, at the ANU itself on this very issue, um, and they'd worked out that bees basically use visual motion. So as they get closer to the surface, it looks like it's moving faster. So what they do is slow down their approach to keep that pace, that visual motion constant. And the effect of that is basically this beautiful landing trajectory as they come down and touch down basically at zero velocity. Incredibly accurate. But it only works for, for a surface coming in on an angle. If you put that surface frontal, so they're coming at it, say, at a wall, like a wall, that motion is no longer doing the same thing. So one of the things I had to do was sort of, I modelled that in a mathematical way, where I sort of looked at, well, what are the parameters? And so when they come in at this angle, it's mostly a, what we call a translational motion, that is a a point moves from A to B and all points around it kind of do so the you, same thing. So you're tracking the thing as it moves across the field Yeah, just, just looking at visual patterns. So mm. you, you take, as you were saying before, I mean, basically, the way I look at images is like just a, a, a values of brightness and darkness and those patterns move in time and they sort of form... As you move through your environment, those patterns will move, but they'll move quite rigidly. So it's not like some chaotic world where points are just disappearing here there and everywhere they're all moving in this pattern and you can model that pattern with mathematics and then try to understand where you are in that world by looking at how things change so what i yeah Brent. oh i just wanted to uh, point out that the, the power of the model that, that chris has made here though is actually an application particularly for things like um, isolated devices so for something that has to go into a very uh, uh, like a helicopter that might be flying into a particular environment that might be very dangerous like a you know a fire or something along those lines so it needs to be able to see things along those lines how are you going to land that you know million dollar piece of equipment that's right um, and if you without having you know uh, you know a human person actually be able to do it it needs to do it on its own and as a result it has to, it does it in this sort of way so the power of what uh, Chris has done is to take a, a live animal this little honeybee work out how it does this sort of behavior and then actually apply it to an actual sort of real life sort of mm. system. I guess I should put a little proviso. I wasn't in a sense working out what the honeybee does, but more trying to work out, well, I know what its problem with the current theory is. Um, what 
the limitations of that are, I can look at the mathematics of that and come up with a solution that works for any angle of approach, for example, which may not be the case for the honeybee, but might be really useful for doing some sort of autonomous um, you know, landing or, or docking uh, with a, an aircraft or something like that. So the only way to get at that was really via a mathematical model. Um, and then once you've got it, you can just a- ask questions at it and, and try to manipulate it in all kinds of ways to see what happens. And, yeah. and that's really where, where my brain gets engaged is yeah. at that point. <laughs> well, and then there's a couple of questions that come up to my mind is, have they requested permission to land on runway three? Or more seriously, um, how have they decided actually that that's a place that they want to go to in the first place? But that's a much more Absolutely. difficult question. Absolutely. But uh, look, a lot of people who are listening to Fuzzy right now will be from the IT business because we have a lot of that in, uh, in Canberra. Let's get a little technical here. What, what hardware and software are you doing all this on? The, uh, you're talking about the Bionic Eye? Yes, or? yes. Um, your, well, your, your, your modelling, your computer part of it. Yep, so basically, uh, I mean, it's, it's, we're really using standard laptops at the moment. Um, uh, so what we actually have in terms of the trials is uh, a converted baby carrier holding a laptop on the back. Of course, this is not how the Bionic Eye oh. would work. And you can see, uh, that in, you can see it on the Catalyst video, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. That video shows it quite nicely, actually. So that's, uh, you know, standard off-the-shelf laptop. Uh, we've written most of our software in, in C, C++. Um, it's just taking... Um, yeah, we have a Point Grey stereo camera, for those that know about Point Grey. It's a, a, they do a lot of, uh, I guess, scientific um, uh, visual, uh, you know, video cameras um, type uh, uh, hardware that um, we're using. So it's all off-the-shelf stuff. Uh, at this stage, um, so it's all cobbled together to. But to when, it, when it becomes closer to being a real product, then I guess you'll use one of those programmable chips and miniaturise yep. the whole thing. Yeah, I think uh, I guess there's a lot of ways that can we can go with that, and there's a lot of issues around. You know, there's, there's obviously processing, uh, battery life. I mean, these are the sorts of real engineering questions that I guess at this stage we're we're conscious of, but not answering as yet um yeah first things first yeah do you feel slightly nervous that uh i mean fundamentally what we're doing here is an amazing piece of research and technology and blending of technology and body but that at some point it's going to be used by the military look i I think this reality exists in a lot i mean certainly i guess again in my research area in general that's Nervous is maybe not the word I'd use, but I'm conscious of it. Uh, Personally, I prefer to be doing things like Bionic Eye because I believe that the good that it gives, the potential for it to have a real impact on on everyday life for a lot of people is well worth pursuing. Uh, Where it finds itself in other areas, I'm not going to speculate on that except to say that, you know, this this is a reality of research in any of these kind of areas. Uh, And, you know, there are trade-offs that we just... I guess have to live by. Um, that's how I see it. Well, to take the opposite perspective of that, sort of not not that I think Chris is wrong or anything along those lines, but what I, I guess we're, the military also has different sort of uh, requirements that it has to do. These guys are putting their lives on the line, and they're going to actually have problems. I mean, they might somebody might get their eye shot out or something along those lines, and as a result, they need some sort of way of actually trying to replace that kind of vision to an individual. Um, and as a result, they have, uh, particularly around the world, a lot of defense agencies have put a huge amount of money into building prosthetics for people who have lost limbs, um, less so for the eye because it's just not as well developed yet. 
um, but that's uh, something that they're clearly uh, trying to actually try and, and solve for their soldiers. Yeah, a good answer because it's about helping people who, who otherwise can't do something that they should or we would like them to be able to do. Absolutely. Well, um, finally, uh, Chris uh, and Brendan, what we have is a development project, research and development project in some sense. Some of it's pure research, of course. What are the challenges to making it real? Um, we talked about the, the safety involved uh, of actually implanting a device in a person. It's pretty challenging. Is, is it a big, is it part of your thinking particularly, or just mostly thinking about the actual hardcore research? I guess, uh, I mean, the, the current funding has certainly focused primarily on the fundamental research, um, and that's where we're at. But, but absolutely, part of that is making a device that's safe, that can, that can stay in for, for many years, and all of that feeds into it. Um, we have our first uh, human trials um, scheduled for 2013, and that's, that's a deliverable of the funding that we are uh, aiming towards right now. So there's actual you know, human implant to occur uh, within the next two years. Um, so, you know, that's that's going to put us, you know, with the success of that, and we all believe that that will be successful, that's going to put us a, long, a big step towards then taking it, obviously, to the, the you know, the potential for commercialisation and all that sort of thing. And, and it is an international collaboration on a very large scale, I believe. It's not just one little lab here or, or anywhere else. It's, it's, it's a whole... You're really relying on collaborating with your peers across the planet. Is that right? It's certainly a massive mm. uh, uh, undertaking here in Australia. Mm. Um, and there's also uh, a lot of colleagues that we have that are in the States and in Germany who uh, haven't been able to give us some of their expertise in terms of what they've been doing to develop their own systems. Um, ours is, is fundamentally uh, different in terms of its engineering principles to some degree. I mean, it ultimately has the same goal, but uh, the way that you solve the problem is just a little bit different. And mm. as a result, we're going to face different challenges. Um, and what we hope is that ours is going to be quite good um, in terms of re replacing vision for individuals and will be the uh, one of choice in the future. But we'll see. Well, that's, that's a great way to do it because uh, there's lots of different ways to solve a problem. And you just if you went down one path it may or may not work that's right yes and uh, it's a wonderful thing that you uh, are both involved in doing and um, the people who suffer challenges with their vision i'm sure at some stage when it all becomes real we'll we'll have you people like you to thank for that and time also now to say thank you from fuzzy logic to uh, uh, dr chris mccarthy thank you very much for coming on to fuzzy logic this morning thanks rod thanks for having me and look forward to uh, more interesting things coming out of NICTA. And Dr. Brendan O'Brien from the ANU, uh, a pleasure to have you back on to Fuzzy Logic again. Thanks, Ryan. It's been great. And join us next week for more Fuzzy Logic. Oh, and by the way, don't forget there's some more Ask Fuzzy com columns coming up in the Canberra Times. Now, the one I promised earlier, um, a couple of weeks ago, was held over, and that's the one on Does Listening to Music Distract You While You're Doing Your Homework? <laughs> Listen to that. <laughs> And, uh, and another one uh, for the week after is an interesting one, and that is on the topic of a condition called restless leg syndrome. Oh. And someone has written me a question that said she suffers it quite badly and what causes it? And it's a really interesting answer, so I look forward to that in the Canberra Times on Mondays. I'll be reading. <laughs> yeah. Catch you later.